<laughs> Our first scripture is that was one of the things they didn't teach us in seminary. It was how to work electronics. Our first scripture reading this morning comes to us from the book of Hebrews, chapter 2, verses 16 through 18. Listen to God's word. For it is clear that he did not come to help angels, but the descendants of Abraham. Therefore, he had to become like his brothers and sisters in every respect, so that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make a sacrifice of atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself was tested by what he suffered, he is able to help those who are being tested. Our second reading is from the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 through 15. Listen again to God's word. The point is this. The one who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And the one who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each of you must give as you have made up your mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to provide you with every blessing in abundance, so that by always having enough of everything, you may share abundantly in every good work. As it is written, he scatters abroad, he gives to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way for your great generosity, which will produce thanksgiving to God through us. For the rendering of this ministry not only supplies the needs of the saints, but also overflows with many thanksgivings to God. Through the testing of this ministry, you glorify God by your obedience to the confession of the gospel of Christ and by the generosity of your sharing with them and with all others, while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God that he has given you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Before we begin this morning, we have a couple of theological ideas that we have to put in our brains and keep there in order for this to make sense. And in order for you to avoid throwing things at me. Because this morning, based on these two ideas that we have in our Reformed theology, I'm going to argue with the writers of these two passages. Hebrews Maybe Paul, maybe not. Second Corinthians, probably Paul. I was, I've always been sure that I could get along just fine with Martin Luther because Luther liked beer and sausage. And most of his theology he worked out in taverns. My kind of guy. I've been somewhat hesitant to think that John Calvin and I could ever occupy the same physical space 
And I've also thought that Paul and I could probably occupy the same space, provided we didn't discuss God. But if we did discuss theology, I promise you, between the two of us, there would have been blood on the ceiling before we were through. That's how much I often disagree with Paul. But our passage from Hebrews brings up a lot of points, and points that people can misunderstand very easily. Part of it is this issue of testing. First concept that we have to bear in mind is God's omniscience. That means God is all-knowing. That means there is nothing God doesn't know. Everything that was, everything that is, everything that ever will be. My contention as a theologian is that time does not exist for God. Time is a creation of God, and God is not bound by any of God's creation. The second one we have to bear in mind is God's omnipresence. God's presence everywhere at all times at the same time. Can you hold those two ideas? Omniscience, all-knowing, omnipresence, everywhere and always present at all times. If we hold those two ideas in mind, then God's testing becomes a stupid idea. Okay. I'm waiting for somebody to give me that look. People call it a test. God is testing you. God's going to see what you're going to do. And I say, no. God already knows what we're going to do. Because God knows us better than we know ourselves. God has no reason to test us. Can you see where we're going with this? God knows everything already. Why would God need to see what we're going to do? We know. We're like little kids sitting at a table and somebody puts a plate of chocolate chip cookies in front of us and goes away to see what we'll do. That's not even an experiment. <laughs> we know exactly what's going to happen. There's no hypothesis to test. And God doesn't test us because God also knows exactly what we can deal with and exactly how much we can take. And I suspect that God loves us too much to pile burdens on us. We do enough of that ourselves. These people are not being tested. I'm not tested by God. You're not tested by God. We're tested by life. This world is complicated enough and messy enough. We create our own tests. Maybe we should stop testing ourselves. But when a test is too much for us, we have God's assurance that God will intervene, that God will do something to alleviate that test that the world's throwing at us. I will say, God tested Abraham. Yeah, sacrifice your only son. That's kind of a test, I think. 
And God may have tested Job a little bit. But Abraham, Job, period. The end. Full stop. Those are the only tests in there. There are characters in Scripture that God's kind of like a goalie and kicks the ball back down the field for them and makes sure they know what they're supposed to be doing. But God didn't test us. Now our 2 Corinthians reading might bring up images of that prosperity gospel. You know, do what God wants and God will make you rich. I believed God for my Rolls Royce and my Learjet. And look, you gave enough money that I could take it and go and buy those. Yay. It's one of the passages that that prosperity gospel is based on. Do the right thing, God gives you plenty. But it also goes all the way back through the Old Testament. When you do right, God blesses you. When you do wrong, God curses you. Does God bless people who are generous? Yes. Because God can. Does God sometimes not bless people who are generous? true. God may not bless us at all or bless us constantly. We don't know the mind of God. But we know something about God's character. The problem with this whole prosperity thing is it misses the point. The point Paul's making is based on this Hellenistic idea. Greek and Roman, if you will. This Hellenistic idea that was embraced by everybody at the time. The ideal is having stuff for ourselves. That's what the Greeks and the Romans promoted. And he has to deal with that. He's dealing in God's name with people who've misunderstood just about everything they've been told. But the proper way to miss to overcome our short yeah, our shortcomings and hardships is not through stuff. It's through each other. And Paul is saying, no, that stuff is not what we're talking about. It's good when it happens. We should be thankful and we should share. Because someday it might not be so much stuff for us. And we may depend on other people to provide what we need. This entire passage in 2 Corinthians is telling us not that we acquire things, but that God provides them. God provides everything from field to food. If we can't take it with us, it belongs to God, not us. Think about that house, that car. Think about the shoes you're wearing today. They're not ours. They belong to God. God has loaned them to us. We're not going to take them with us. And if we can't take them with us, they don't really matter. If you ever can't afford shoes, let me know because I can make sandals at least.
Your toes will get cold, but that's nothing I can do about that. God wants us to share what is His. I told you that to tell you this. In Lincoln County, at last count, 33.8% of our children under the age of 18 live in poverty. That means the poverty line for a family of four is $24,000. So if the income of the household falls below $24,000, they are said to be living in poverty. Now, if the, the, their income is $24,001, they are not living in poverty. Right? If they're $24,001, they have everything they need. It's troubling enough, but it doesn't count that family of four who makes $25,000 a year. That extra $1,000 does not make much difference. And then figure that $25,000, they still have to pay taxes. Sales tax, income tax, whatever, they still have to pay just like the rest of us. And USA Today rated all these states where most of the children go hungry in the United States, and we were number one. We finally beat Mississippi at something. Starving children. Wow. And in 2013, Kids Count Data, this uh, Ann Casey Foundation, measured economic well-being. She, they took it further. Economic well-being, quality of education, the status of health care, the support of the community. And with all of those considered, New Mexico is dead last again. There's even a, a channel on YouTube that recommends if you have a family, it's called The World According to Briggs, he does stats, recommends if you have children, do not move to New Mexico. If you're a responsible parent, you would never do that. What does that say? I think what it, what it says is We don't care. Let that sink in for a minute. Is there enough food in this country to feed everybody? Is there enough food in this world to feed everybody? We turn corn into kitty litter. You know that? We turn it into kitty litter. And there are people starving right here in our own county. Is that God's justice? Is that what God intended by giving us all these blessings? That we should just not care? Think about this last, uh, I don't know, I think of it as kind of a carnival midway. The, I think we call it an election. Think about this. How many people running for any office, anywhere, and it doesn't just have to be here in the United States or here in Ruidoso, all over the world, 
Who campaigns on the subject of hunger? Who campaigns on the subject of homelessness? Who campaigns on the subject of people not being able to get the care they need regardless of their situation? Who campaigns on those things? Nobody, because candidates campaign about things that matter to us. And those things don't matter to us. In the abstract, sure, we don't want anybody to be hungry. But when it comes right down to fixing the systems that create these problems, we don't care. That's hard work. How many times have you heard anybody who holds an office of any kind, not just political, say, you don't understand how complicated it is. How complicated is it? Food, hungry child, give the food to the hungry child. That's not complicated. And anybody who tells you it is, is a liar. And you can tell them your minister said so. And give them my address and my phone number. Because I'd be happy to visit with them about it. No one addresses those issues because by and large the public just doesn't care. We have enough to eat. Right? Anybody here go hungry this morning or yesterday? Of course not. But the people who lead us only address issues that are important to us. Where can I get my driver's license and it be compliant with federal law? Can I carry a gun? What's our immigration policy? Who marries whom? Who controls public land? Those things matter to us. And that's what they address because that is what we care about. Hungry children and families are not being tested by God. They're being tested by us. And it's not fair. And it is not God's justice. Look, we can't. Can you fix world hunger? No, you can't. You don't have that kind of influence. But you can fix the hunger that's around you. And we can make noise to the people who can fix the problem. We could hold them accountable. We could even say, look, you ran for the office because you wanted it. Now, frankly, yeah, it might be complicated. But how many of you have ever been able to tell your boss the job is just too complicated and your boss doesn't understand? And that worked. <laughs> now, you run for office, you try to get it, you get it. Don't gripe to us about how difficult and complicated it is. Get to work. But God calls on us to change the world, to fix what is broken. Not just to throw money at a problem, but to look for ways to fix it permanently. We have so much on our plate and so much in front of us that we sometimes think it's impossible. It's really not. When we start caring about it and make sure that the world 
and those who lead us know that we care about it. I don't care if my driver's license is acceptable to fly on a plane. I have a passport for that. Never thought I would need a passport to travel inside my own country, but right now I do. But I can afford a passport. Some people just can't. We do things like reverse offering. We do things like Hungry Hannah on the first Sunday of every month, and those are good things. They address the immediate needs, but they don't address the long-term needs and the source of it. Without addressing the source of it, those immediate needs remain long-term. They will never, ever go away. But if we could deal with those, we might find a way within ourselves to deal with other problems once we solve some hard ones. The rest of them won't seem quite as hard. You know, waiting is the hardest part. That anticipation, what are we going to do? How are we going to fix it? What's the doctor going to say to me? It's the anticipation that kills us. But now we know what's going on around us. What do we do? I have some ideas. I'll bet you have some ideas. Because we're intelligent. I'll bet there are a lot of people out there who say, I know what to do, but nobody asks me. Heard that one? I can fix the world, but nobody cares what I think. Well, make them care. Just don't shut up. I used to tell people when I was a psychologist and they needed some assistance in paying stuff, I used to tell them, go to Social Security. You have a disability, it's legitimate. It's in interfering with your ability to work, with your ability to function in the world. Go and talk to them. And they would come back the next week and say, they told me no. And I said, that's why you go back this week. And you do it again. And if you have to, you show up every single day. Eventually, they'll approve you just to make you go away. That's what Jesus advocated. The woman who wouldn't leave the judge alone and she finally got what she wanted. Agitate. Be your own spokesperson and your own advocate. I'll tell you a story. Once upon a time, there was a guy and he started, I mean, it was truly rags to riches. It's a beautiful story. By the time it got toward the end of his life, this guy had Everything, nothing was out of his reach. And people would come to him and say, we need help for this issue. And he would say, you know, I know you need help and money, but I didn't have any help. I didn't have any kind of assistance. I did it myself. Lie number one, we'll get to that. So, no, I don't, I think these people need to stand up on their own two feet and they need to take care of themselves. So, go away. And he never did do anything like that. 
And one day he went down waiting for his limo to come pick him up in front of his office building. The little boy was selling newspapers. And the man wanted a newspaper, said, how much for the newspaper, son? The little boy said, 90 cents, sir. The guy reached in his pocket and his car pulled up and he said, here, this adult, just keep the change, okay? And he stepped off the curb and bam, got hit by a bus. Next thing he knows, he's standing at the edge of heaven, wherever that is, and he's facing Jesus. And Jesus says, you know, it would be nice if I could find one good thing you did in your lifetime, but there's nothing. No, wait, Jesus, wait. Right before I died, I let a little boy keep the change from a paper I bought. And Jesus said, wow, let me look. And he looked it up and he said, yes, you did. And he reached up in his robe and he pulled out a coin. And he said, here's your dime, go to hell. You can laugh, it's okay. <laughs> it's funny because we fear it might be true. We can't do anything we think. We think we're powerless. But I'll tell you who's more powerless. A hungry child. I'll tell you who's more powerless than that is a family that's only living above the poverty level by $1,000 a year. They're powerless. Nobody is going to listen to them. And we have to stand up with them and make their issues more public, more visible. Not to sweep them off the edges of the community, but to put them in the middle and say, we got to take care of people, and this is what we got to take care of. What are we going to do? And we also have to demand that these problems become a priority. You make them important, they'll get fixed. But we make them important by seeing them as important in our own lives and acting like they matter. That's God's justice. I wish there were more of you here this morning to hear it. I'm sure people who aren't here are going to hear about it and come in next week and throw things at me. But that's okay. We have to sometimes leave church feeling very uncomfortable. I'll soothe you next week. But for this week, think about the numbers. Think about what really matters to all of us. Amen.